Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We'll be concluding our study of 2 Peter today, so please turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3, and I've entitled the lesson this morning, What Kind of People Ought You to Be? What Kind of People Ought You to Be? We'll look at verses 11 through 18 of chapter 3. So last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 3, and we noted, first of all, Peter's loving reminder. Peter is a compassionate pastor, a loving pastor, and uh, the purpose of both his epistles, he tells us in verse 1, is to stir up our pure minds by way of reminder, both of the the works of Christ, of course, and of the words of the holy prophets he mentions, and the word of Christ as spoken through his apostles. He mentions that as well, so he covers the breadth of Scripture there. So he's trying to stir up our minds. He mentioned uh, that the use of the words pure minds, by the way, is referring to those of us as believers as opposed to the polluted minds of the unsaved. He's doing this contrast between the false teachers and those that are true, he's doing a contrast between false believers and those that are true. So he's trying to, the idea of the pure minds, this should be a reflection of us. And uh, that should be our goal, of course, that our minds are purified by the word of God. He also contrasts the holy prophets with the false prophets in this study, or false teachers that he's been rebuking as we've been going through this book. And we need to seek, beloved, we need to seek to have our minds washed or sanctified by the washing of water by the word, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.26. We need our minds washed from the filth of this world, really. You know, the mark of God's people and his ministers is to be their holiness, as contrasted to the wickedness of the unbelieving world around us. And frankly, we do live in a very wicked, unbelieving world uh, that isn't getting any better at this point. In fact, I just had a chance to... um, read a large portion of a message by John MacArthur in which he basically states that we are currently in the United States under God's judgment. We're we're under his judgment. This isn't just a freak situation that will kind of get fixed out with a, quote, next election. That's not going to save us. Uh, Social activity is not going to save us. But rather, we need to be faithful regardless of the circumstances around us and preach the gospel. That's what we're here for. Otherwise, God will have taken us home. If he, you know... If uh, once he saved us, he could have just snatched us right up and we'd be gone. But we're left here for a reason. What is that reason? To spread the gospel, to advance his kingdom by preaching the word of God, teaching the word of God, and reaching people with the gospel. But frankly, uh, MacArthur said, we're not going to save this nation in the next election or by doing some sort of social activity. We need to just preach the word of God and teach the word of God and live the word of God. That will make an impact on the nation. It may not save this nation from God's ultimate judgment, but it will at least be what we're supposed to be here for anyway, regardless. And when you think about it, you know, we, we look of our nation as a quote-unquote you know, Christian or at least semi-Christian nation, but any other nation on earth, Ukraine, uh, the Middle East in particular, uh, Southeast Asia, um, they don't have the kind of freedom we have to preach and teach the gospel, do they? I mean, there's a, there's a real struggle there. Uh, there's a battle uh, that is, makes it very difficult, especially in Russia and in China in particular, they don't have that kind of freedom that we have. And so when you we were to put yourself in their particular situation, we would be thinking, wow, how can we endure this? How can we live through this? Well, they're still there. They're still living. They're still enduring. They're still serving God. And we look back at the Old Testament and the New Testament and see what God's people endured because of the sin that surrounded them and the God's judgment on the nations. Because of that sin, they still live for God. They still endured. They still sought to do what they were here for, which is to proclaim the gospel. 
And that's what we should be doing. But we need to be careful, and that's what Peter's doing here. He says, watch out. Watch out for false prophets. Watch out for these false teachers. Don't let them uh, pollute your minds with false teaching to the point where you drift away from the truth. So that's important that we are careful <clears throat> that we don't get into this. And we have to be careful of a phony holiness, too. What were the Pharisees? You know, they were supposedly righteous, but it was a phony righteousness, wasn't it? It wasn't a true righteousness. It was a righteousness built upon their own opinion, their own ideas, their own little laws that they were keeping. So we don't want to have that phony righteousness, but a genuine godliness of character, Peter's pointing at here, that reflects the work of God in us. Is this not what Paul uh, is exhorting us to be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, when he quotes two Old Testament passages, and he says, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And there's the comfort in the midst of persecution, uh, whether it's, <clears throat> like I said, now in the Middle East, in China and other places, going back in history, if you were caught, if you were, happened to be a member of the Huguenots in France or the Scottish Covenanters, they endured intense persecution to the point of death. Many of them, thousands of them were slaughtered uh, in, in many circumstances. And yet they were, were true to the Lord. They separated themselves as unto the Lord and they trusted the Lord that he was their God he was their father, and they were his sons and daughters. And that was the comfort. That should be important to us more so than any other comfort we might have as far as where we live, what nations we live in. So Peter's warning his leaders here not to be surprised, not to be surprised at this increase of scoffers, which is what he's warning them against, for it's a sign that we are in the last days, he says. Now we know that the last days, from a biblical point of view in this situation, is actually the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Those are the last days, as the scripture teaches. So these scoffers show their ignorance of the Old Testament, as well as the teaching of the apostles, and that they belittled the promise of Christ's coming uh, in judgment on sin, saying that God's never judged sin before. It shows, of course, their ignorance, their lack of knowledge of the truth. They are what we called followers of uniformitarianism. Okay? They believe that all things have, have stayed the same, Everything has, has been the same since the beginning of time. No judgment, no big deal. You know, everything just kind of flows along. That's their, their point of view, so to speak. But we know, uh, well, in fact, they believe in a sense God is absent or he's taking a vacation. He's no longer around. You know, he's not here. Or, or he's so loving that he wouldn't want to interfere with our lives. You know, he wouldn't want to judge us because he's so compassionate and so loving. That's not, of course, the truth. In fact, it would be more likely deists would believe that at this time, if you know what a deist is. Uh, they're similar in that belief. So as Peter so aptly points out here, they forget that God used the flood in Old Testament times to destroy the wicked while sparing those whom he chose to redeem. And of course, we know God brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah too. So they've forgotten history here. They've forgotten what's going on, or they've conveniently ignored it because they don't want to face that fact that God could come and judge them. And that's uh, true today, I think you could say, in our society. People living the way they are today, the immorality of our society, the ungodliness is kind of anchored in the fact that they don't either believe in God or they believe God is so loving and compassionate that he just kind of overlooks our sin or he tolerates it, he's, he's forgiving, uh, he'll just maybe you know, slap us on the wrist or something, but he won't truly bring judgment. And of course, Peter is warning him, saying, no, it's coming. The judgment is coming. It's promised. It's, it's true. It's not just a, a figment of someone's imagination. Thus, when God promises to judge the world, we know, based on the scripture, as Peter has, has given them examples, 
When he promises to judge the world via fire at some future date, we can be assured that God's not just throwing warnings out there to scare people. He will do it. Okay? God never says anything in his word that he just kind of casually utters as a, you know, a threat or, a, or an offhanded remark. No, whatever God says is true. It's his word. So judgment will come. The wrath of God will come upon the wicked. And, of course, we need to warn them of that. But ultimately, we know it's the Holy Spirit will bring them to that conviction. But it's a reality. Okay, we can look on it as reality, not as some dream or nightmare, you might say. Judgment will come. God will bring, he will promise, he will do what he has promised to do. And so we need, can be comforted in that, obviously in the sense that he has promised to take us into eternity if we are found in Christ. But we also need to face the reality that those around us who know not Christ are facing a certain judgment unless they repent. So that should give us a compassion for them, a desire to see them come to repentance. Peter reminds us in verses 8 and 9 here of chapter 3 that God's timing is not ours. He is not bound by time at all. And as an example, Peter tells us that a thousand years is like, notice that word, like one day to God and vice versa. One day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. God is not bound by time. We are bound by time. We are bound by a calendar, uh, really. We're bound by our clocks and our watches. But God is not bound by that. So what he says he will do, he will do in his time, not in our time, not according to our schedule. And we can be comforted in that, that he's in control of that. God is not worried about when things are going to happen. In the fullness of time, he brought forth Christ. And in the fullness of time, he will bring forth his judgment. By the way, there are those who jump on this particular situation, a thousand years is one day, one year is a thousand, uh, that take up that and say, well, uh, that must mean that somehow if we, if we use this, we can count up years using 1,000 to 1 ratio and come up with a, an approximate date of Christ's coming. Well, that's been done multiple times, and they haven't turned out real well, have they? Uh, all the guesses about when Christ is coming have not proved accurate. So that's foolish to take that. This is, he is saying it's 1,000 years like one day. To God, time is meaningless. Not that there's a literal 1,000 years for each day that God looks at things. And, of course, that's where we got into the, uh, the, the serious error and looking at uh, creation and Genesis as people thinking that each day was a thousand years, and therefore that adds up to a, a large time, amount of time rather than seven actual days in creation. So these are warnings he's giving here. Uh, he's showing a comparison, trying to put things in perspective, because we're talking about an infinite God, and we're finite people. So the terms that we use to describe him and how he views things are kind of incomprehensible to us. We, we can't think in terms of infinity, infinity and and an infinite God, an all-powerful God. We think in terms of what we know and can understand and feel, but he's beyond us. And we need to keep that in perspective. Our God is, is beyond our imagination. He is so powerful, so righteous, so holy, so pure in all he does. And we're so different from that that it's hard for us to grasp that. But that's our God. And we can be comforted by the fact that that is who he is. So, and rather than point to uh, the fact that... Um, God is, is, is not doing anything and saying, well, he's, he's being compassionate. These people are saying, oh, he's, he's never going to do anything anyway. I mean, he, he hasn't done anything. So Peter reminds him of that. He says, hey, you need to be aware of the fact that God has judged in the past and he will judge in the future. And the reason God doesn't bring his judgment as quickly as we think is due to his mercy and desiring that what? That all his elect would be brought in, right? That's the reason why he doesn't brought his judgment because obviously that means that the elect aren't gathered yet. They still have to be brought in. There's still people out there that need to come to Christ. And, of course, that is what we are here for, to 
point them to the gospel, to point them to Christ, that they might come, and therefore his kingdom will be fulfilled. And we noted that looking carefully at the Greek words there in verse 9, that God is long-suffering toward us. Okay, that word us there is referring to his chosen people, not us meaning everybody who happens to read this epistle. It's, he's long-suffering toward us, his people, that all should come to repentance, all of his people, all of his elect. In fact, we read Paul's summary there in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, that it's all about his people that are coming to him. God's very patient with the wicked, uh, more so than they deserve, and he might, in accordance with his timing, uh, postpone his judgment in a sense from our perspective, but withhold his judgment until all of his people are gathered in. So finally, we looked at verse 10 there. We noted that while the wicked scoff at Christ's coming in judgment, it shall come upon them like a thief in the night when they least expect it. There's not going to be any warning sign, anything, you know, a little angel coming in the sky saying, you got two years or you got, you know, 20 days or you got this much time. It will come like a thief in the night suddenly upon them which will be too late at that time, of course, for them to repent. This time there will not be a flood, but there will be a fire, a fire of God's wrath that will purify the earth and the heavens in a cataclysmic judgment. We as God's people need not fear such a day because we, if we are in Christ, will be safe in the arms of our great Redeemer and Lord, Jesus Christ. So that's a comfort for us. So let's begin to look at this last part here of the chapter. And the first thing we want to look at, as Peter's telling us, is the believer's attitude in view of this consummation that's coming. What is the believer's attitude? What should our thoughts be? What should our attitude be? Well, we know God's coming in judgment. So, and once again, Peter loves to do this. He drives home his point with another one of these simple yet profound if-then statements. Okay? If the judgment of God is coming and the earth is going to be purified with fire, then how should we live? Let's look at verses 11 through 13 as he tells us this. Therefore, and there's that word, anytime you see therefore, you should be looking back to see what he's speaking of. Of course, he's been warning about this judgment. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we... According to his promise, look for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Note what he says there. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. As one commentator put it, God's revelation about the end of the world ought to make the believer aware of living a life that's pleasing to God. If we know God's coming in judgment, and we know God is coming to, in, a, in, in some cases, sanctify and even rebuke his people for not being what we ought to be. Uh, though we're not subject to his wrath, we are subject to his chastening hand. And so if we're thinking of that, we think in terms of God's judgment coming upon the earth, how should we, should we be living? I mean, from one perspective, we want to honor God. From one perspective, we want to make sure that we're not ashamed when he comes. But the other perspective is we are the light of the world, right? We're, we're supposed to be a light showing people of God's wrath to come, uh, warning them of God's wrath to come, pointing them to Christ, lest they perish in their sins. So those things should make us aware that since these things are coming, well, how should we live? How should we be reacting to the world? And this is in contrast, of course, to the world's philosophy that whoever accumulates the most toys wins, you know, at the end of life, or again, that a God of love will never come in judgment. So, beloved, we need to ask ourselves an honest question. Are we living in anticipation of Christ's coming, 
Or are we living indifferently, as if we really don't believe he's going to come at any time? Do we believe that? Do you believe Christ could come at any time? We can get into arguments over eschatology and all these things, but in a sense, we need to be aware of that Christ could come whenever he is ordained to come by the Father. Just as in, the, in that first century, uh, he came in the fullness of time when God had ordained, he will come in judgment in the fullness of God's time. We need to think, not think in terms of, oh, that's you know, down the road here, next generation, that's not me, I'll be in glory. It could be. You know, we, can't, we can't say that we know what God's timing is. He could bring about his judgment and whatever he sees fit, whenever the kingdom is full, whenever all the elect are in. In the meantime, we should be seeking to reach those people with the gospel so that they all might be brought in. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. So are we living in anticipation of Christ's coming? Are we living indifferently? Are we aware and thinking about? Will we be one of those who are ashamed of his coming or one who gladly receives him and welcomes him as our Lord and Savior? Jesus asked that very, I guess you might say, piercing and poignant question. In Luke chapter 18, verse 80, he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find us being faithful? Will he find us just kind of indifferent to his coming? How will we be acting? Will he find us trusting him? Will he find us testifying of him and living for him? Or will he find us living a self-indulgent life? You know, I, I honestly have to look at myself and ask, am I fulfilling the role he has for me or am I doing my own thing? Am I kind of just living my own life and not really thinking about the fact that I should be living for him and being a light for him? Turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we'll look at uh, verses 28 and 29. 1 John 2. 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Let me read that again. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Are we abiding in him? Are we, and abiding in him means we're trusting in him completely. We're living for him. Also in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus gave this warning, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he was talking about when he was alive. Talk about an adulterous and sinful generation. It's been around for a while, unfortunately, and it's getting worse in our society anyway. For everyone who is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So we need to be thinking about that. We do not want Christ to come and have us standing there ashamed that we have not been living for him. We have not been making a difference for him. We have not been looking for him and longing for him and desiring to be with him. Not only should our conversation, which basically means scripturally our conduct, uh, be holy and reflect the grace of God in us, but we should be looking for and note the word hastening the coming of God. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? How can we hasten? How can we hasten or speed up the coming of the Lord? But that's a scriptural uh, term here. The Greek word here for hasten is spiudo, and it literally means to speed or urge on, to urge on something. While it's true that, on the one hand, God is overall, obviously he's overall and he's in control of the timing of all things, we just said that, including Christ's return, yet there are a number of scriptures 
that point us to a part we play in this earth-changing event. This idea of hastening the Lord's coming is in line with Paul's prayer in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22, and John's in Revelation 22, 20, where they use the Aramaic term Maranatha, which literally means, O Lord, come. So there's that sense of anticipation. Oh Lord, they're praying. They're calling out, Lord, come. Lord, come. We need to have that attitude as well. We desire the Lord to come. We are praying for him to come because we want him to fulfill his will, not our will. And we also note, <clears throat> excuse me, we also note this, uh, this idea of hastening is, is a, a, a confidence, I guess, in the Lord coming, a sense in which we believe he's coming and we pray that he would fulfill that will by coming to us. And uh, I think we uh, note that the com- one commentator pointed out that Christ exhorted his followers in Matthew 24, verse 14, to preach the gospel of the kingdom to all the world, as, here's the quote, as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. We're to preach the gospel to the whole world, and then the end will come. Hence, the more the gospel is spread, the more God's elect are brought into the kingdom via faith in Christ, the quicker he will come and take them unto himself. That's kind of the formula. In fact, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and we'll look at verses uh, 19 through 21. Acts 3, 19 through 21. Acts 3.19, repent therefore, this is Peter uh, preaching in uh, Solomon's portico there in the temple, uh, just after they healed the, the layman, and everybody came you know, crowding around and asking how could they do this, what's going on, he says, verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. In this text here in Acts, Peter is urging the people to repent repent and be converted. In other words, believe on Christ for salvation. Note, so that, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ. Times of refreshing might come as you believe, the Spirit will be poured out, and that Jesus Christ may come. So in one sense, as Simon Kistemacher made comment in his commentary, if we wish to speed the coming of God's day, we should evangelize the world. When we bring the last of God's children to faith and repentance so that his house may be full, as we're told in Luke 14, 33, then the end will come. Of course, we know that it is the Holy Spirit that brings people to faith in Christ. But it isn't what? How, how does that happen? It's via the preaching of the gospel. And that's our job, isn't it? It's our responsibility. So as we fulfill our responsibility and are faithful to that, we don't have to worry about when it's going to happen. We just do what we're faithful, supposed to be faithful to do. And God will bring about the end, the gathering in of his sheep. And at that time, when they're all gathered in, then the end will come. We don't know what that day is, but if we're doing our job, it shouldn't matter. We're just doing our job until we no longer have a job, right? That all the elect are brought in. So we leave that up to God, but we are faithful. And in that sense... We're hastening the coming of the Lord by doing our job, by being faithful Christians and spreading the gospel. Okay? In verse 13, going back to our text there in 2 Peter, in verse 13, Peter contrasts the judgment that will come upon the wicked with the blessed hope that we have in Christ. And that's important, like I said, we keep that in mind. We rejoice in the mercies of God towards us. 
And yet we should pray for compassion and a desire to reach the lost because they are facing the sheer judgment of God. It's not a vague hope, we know, or a wish, but it is based upon the promise of a God that cannot lie. And that's important. We know that our God, when he says something's going to happen, whether it's Christ's first coming or second coming, it will happen according to his time. And we can be assured that he's in control of everything, whether it be the storms that might rage throughout the land, uh, wars, famines, different trials, pandemics, whatever you want to call it, he's still in control. God never takes a vacation. He never pauses. He's never distracted. He's always in control. And that should comfort us as his people when things are going crazy around us. He is in control. He may be judging the nation around us. He may be withholding his grace from this nation that it might dive into immorality and wickedness, but he's still in control. Remember, the, hand of the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, so God appoints rulers. Joe Biden is not the president of the United States because he happened to get more votes than, than Donald Trump. He's there because God put him there. Now, whether God put him there to test our faith or to judge this nation, we don't know. He certainly didn't put him there to bless this nation, but he's in control of that. And so we need to have that sense that God's on the throne, and he may bring about some very difficult times in order to purge sin from a nation or to judge a nation for sin and to strengthen us that we, in the midst of the darkness we might be a light, right? The darker it is around us, the brighter we should shine as a light to the world to show them to Christ. <clears throat> and obviously it is something to look forward to for us and something to live for in these days that we are looking for a world in which righteousness is the home. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65, we're going to bounce around to a few scriptures today, but Isaiah 65 and verses 17 through 25, our faith, our hope is based upon a promise of a God who cannot lie. And here's what God says. This is a God who cannot lie. It says this, Isaiah 65 and beginning at verse 17, for behold, and this is a prophetic passage speaking through Isaiah, behold, I create new heavens and new earth, And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. That's not happening right now, is it? It's going to happen, though. No more shall an infant be there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. But the sinner, and this is kind of a... I guess you'd call it a, uh, I forget the term, but it's kind of a, a, a saying, but not necessarily, obviously, an infant's only going to live to 100 years, but it's kind of a picture of long life and, and freedom of life. But the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, some of that, of course, is, is uh, prophetic words uh, that we have to kind of take in context. But the picture here is that God will bring about his judgment. He'll bring about his blessing upon his people. And John confirms that in his uh, apocalyptic prophecy in Revelation 
And also Isaiah repeats that in Isaiah chapter 66. Peter's encouraging his readers here and us with this portrait of a new creation, which is literally the home of righteousness. That's what he's saying. It's the home of righteousness. The new world will be a home of righteousness. Today, that's not the case. But in the future, we will be in a place that righteousness reigns. It is the home of righteousness. Now, obviously, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Something to look forward to and something to live for in these days. We live for that hope that we will one day be in a world that is the home of righteousness. And, of course, that's where God will dwell, a new, world, new heavens and a new earth. And, by the way, the word new here, new is meant in terms of quality, not necessarily chronologically. Paul tells us in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation has been longing, has been groaning for the fulfillment of God's promise. It's eagerly awaiting the day when the curse is removed and sin is banished from the new heavens and the new earth and righteousness takes its place. That's the glorious picture that should be before us. That's what we should long for. And how do we bring that about? We hasten that in the sense, from our perspective anyway, by living for the Lord, by spreading the gospel, and in seeing his kingdom advanced as he works through us. So before we move to our next point, I just want to briefly mention another point of view regarding verses 10 through 13 where all this judgment uh, language is, basically some commentators believe that Peter is not necessarily talking here about the end of the world, but about the destruction of Jerusalem, and in particular the temple and the Old Testament means of worshiping God. He's talking about the ending of Old Testament worship and the destruction of of the temple, of course, to do that. Uh, This idea is is rooted in uh, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, where he weeps over Jerusalem and its future destruction and says, you do not know the time of your visitation. You do not know the time of your visitation. That word visitation is in line with Old Testament prophecies of God's visiting the world in judgment. That term is used in the Old Testament when he's visiting, means he's not visiting like we think of a visitor coming and just spending some time with us, but God's visiting his wrath upon the world. That's the, the way the language is used in the Old Testament. Peter's writing about some prophecies that he expected to be fulfilled in his lifetime. These would include Jesus' own words, that there's some standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What's he speaking about there? Well, some believe that that coming in his kingdom is a picture of his wrath, and that's what happened, of course, to Jerusalem in AD 70. Also of special interest is the Greek word stoichion, which is translated elements in verse 10 and verse 12, elements. Although, like many Greek words, it can have several meanings, depending on its context. It's used by Paul several times in his epistles to depict the old covenant order in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 9, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 and verses 20 through 21. He uses that term stoichion, elements, to depict the Old Testament order. Okay, so the Old Testament order is going to be eliminated. The idea here is that Peter is forewarning his readers of the coming fall of Jerusalem, which will happen, of course, which did happen in A.D. 70, and the destruction of the old covenant order of worship. Now you say, okay, if that's true, where does the fiery part come in? How does that you know, get into the story? Well, as one author points out, the Old Testament is full of judgment language that involves the heavens being on fire, etc., when God judges a nation. And Christ himself uses the terms to describe the end of the Old Testament system and God's judgment on Israel for rejecting the new covenant instituted by Christ. Uh, he does it in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and this text in Luke chapter 17, verses 28 and 29, he says, Likewise, 
As it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, some commentators, including R.C. Sproul, thought that the fiery judgment spoken of in these verses is one of purification instead of total destruction. In other words, the heavenly earth will not be totally destroyed, but the dross or the wickedness will be burned off, leaving a pure earth and a pure heavens in which righteousness dwells. In fact, Paul's prophecy in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 kind of hints at this scenario. R.C. Sproul put it this way in his commentary on this passage. He said, The planet is reduced to a state of groaning, waiting for its final day when God will make all things new. Now, I'm speculating at this point, but when I read these images of fire, I think not so much of fire that annihilates as of a fire of a crucible that produces the final product, removing slag, impurities, and dross. How and when God is going to do it, I have no idea, but I am confident that he is going to do it. And a reference might be made to Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6. It says, The word of the Lord is pure like silver, tried and purified seven times. So the picture here is that when God judges the earth, it's not necessarily a total destruction of the earth, so there's no more earth, and then a new earth and new heaven come down, totally recreated. But it's a picture of like silver, purified. It's, it's all the dross, all the wickedness is burned off, and what's left is the righteousness of the saints. That's a picture, that's a type, that's uh, an idea to think of. It's, I'm not saying it has to be the point of view, but it's just another point of view for you to consider. Okay, let's move on, though, in our text and look at the next few verses. And we'll look at what Peter's telling here to be diligent and interesting to follow Paul's advice, to be diligent and follow Paul's advice in verses 14 through 16. So once again, Peter returns to this logical sequence style of teaching by taking the promise he gives in verse 13 and pointing us to an appropriate response. And again, I challenge you as you read the scriptures, don't just read and kind of, you know, say, well, that was nice. But look for these logical sequences, both of Peter and Paul and the other apostles, other writers of the New Testament. Look for how they logically present something. You don't just throw words on the page and make it sound good. But there's a point in their using these examples. There's a point in using these types and signals that they're giving us. So look for those. Look for these if-then statements and contemplate those, how they apply to us today. Let's read verses 14 through 16. Therefore, beloved, and again, once you see therefore, look back what he was saying before. Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destructions as they do also the rest of scriptures. So therefore, since we have this blessed hope before us of a new world where righteousness rather than wickedness reigns, how should we conduct ourselves? That's what Peter's saying. How should we conduct ourselves? We note that Peter uses the verb to look forward. In fact, he uses it three times in a row in verses 12 through 14. We as believers must live by hope a hope anchored in the sure promises of God. Calvin made this comment on verse 14. He said, He justly reasons from hope to its effect, or the practice of a godly life. 
For hope is living and efficacious. Therefore, it cannot be but that it will attract us to itself. That hope that we have isn't just a vague hope, but it should be a hope that's anchored in the promises of God, and therefore it should have that effect on our life. It should have caused us to do things because we know it's a sure hope. It's not an imaginary hope. It's a real hope. And that's hard, isn't it? Because we are finite creatures. It's hard for us, again, to look in terms and think in terms of eternity. It's hard for us to picture what heaven looks like and what that life will be like once we get there. We can talk about it in, you know, in, in good terms, in comforting terms as we read the scriptures, but really in our minds, can we picture exactly what heaven will look like? We, we can't, can we? we? We can have sort of general ideas from Scripture, but we don't know exactly what it's going to be like. But that doesn't matter. We should be comforted in the fact that it's there, it's real, that God's promise is real. We will be there one day. We look When our loved ones pass and we see them there in the casket, or we see them before they're, they're taken away, uh, we think, well, we hope and we, we desire to, th- to have a comfort in that they're with the Lord now. We can't exactly get an idea of what it looks like up there and what they're doing, but we think they're in the presence of God and they're rejoicing before his throne and one day we'll be there. And that hope should encourage us to keep living. It should give us a sense of confidence that we are going to be there one day, even though we can't quite grasp what it's like. Yet God's promises are sure and therefore it should drive us forward. It should be an anchor for our soul that God's promises are not arbitrary, but they're real, they're true. And as Calvin said, that cannot but help us live efficaciously uh, because we believe in that it should inspire us to live for god now so that when christ comes we may be found at him as it says in peace at his will and walking in obedience to it in purity of life first john 2 18 applies it and so does john first john 3 3 which says and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure so if you have this hope in him it should not lead you into sin, but rather it should purify you, and it should drive you to be more pure if you have this hope in him. If you're thinking about Christ, about being in his presence, in fact, if you're thinking of him coming to judge the world, and again, you don't want to be ashamed of his coming, well, that should drive you to live a pure life, right? It should drive you to live a life that's pleasing to him, so that when he comes, you won't be ashamed. So we must ask ourselves the question, beloved, are we being motivated to holiness and peace that passes all understanding? as we look at the second coming of Christ, as the scripture tells us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, and verses 9 and 10, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Again, it's like if you're looking forward to a... um, let's say, an anniversary or birthday or something, and it was a special birthday in some sense, like your 100th birthday, your mother's celebrating, looking forward to a very special event. You're kind of anticipating that coming, and so you're preparing for it. You're making plans. You're looking for it with joy, especially if it's obviously a pleasant event. You're looking forward to it, and you're thinking, what can I do to prepare for that? How can I get ready for it? Well, we should be preparing for Christ's coming, obviously, by living for him, by being grounded in his word, and being a light to the world that he wants us to be. So when he comes, we're not ashamed of his coming. We're rejoicing. Rejoicing the day has come. Just as we would be if we're looking forward to a special event in our life. We're anticipating it coming. We're preparing for it in a way that would bring about the greatest amount of joy. And it comes. And we're glad. Rather than we're disappointed. Okay? So we don't want to be disappointed at his coming because we haven't been living the way we ought to live. 
Peter points out here, repeats actually from verse 9 in these texts we just read in verses 14 through 16, he points out that God's patience in withholding his judgment is due to his desire to bring all his elect into the kingdom. God is patient. He's compassionate. He's waiting. He's looking for all of his elect to be brought in. As one author put it, God's patience then results in granting his people a period of extended grace. He's granting us extended grace that we might endure until that time comes because we may be in the midst of a severe persecution again. If you lived in China right now and you were one of the 130 million people that live in poverty there that really have little or nothing, you'd be really anticipating, if you're a Christian, that Christ would come and deliver you from that poverty, from that shame. Or even then, the people from Early Reign Covenant Church, which was an important church there in China, that are now in prison, that are suffering for the sake of the gospel, I would think they'd be anticipating the coming of Christ, praying for it, desiring to be delivered, but looking for it with joy, knowing it'll be a glorious thing. Not just that their pain and suffering would be ended, but that they'll see Christ. They'll be in his presence. They'll be fulfilling that which they've lived for and longed for. So... God's patience is giving us grace to live for him and to reach out for those. Paul put it this way in Romans 2.4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That's what we need to preach to the people around. God is being patient. His forbearance, his patience, is giving people the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Now, we know only those whom he's called will respond, but again, that's our job, to reach them. We don't know who they are. We reach out to them with the gospel, and God's patience is waiting for them to come. He's desiring them to come to repentance. Praise God for his patient love towards sinners like us. But we do not test his patience, beloved. We do not wait for a more convenient season, as Felix, the Roman governor, did and ended up perishing in his sins as we're told in Acts chapter 24, verse 25. If you do not know Christ, then you need to seek him now. That's what he's saying. If you don't know him, you need to seek him now. Call upon him in true repentance for your sin and by faith believe in his redemptive work on the cross for sinners like you. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Now we know this important reference here in verses 15 and 16 by Peter to our beloved brother Paul calls him our beloved brother Paul. Now, now, Paul had once rebuked Peter in Antioch, hadn't he? He'd kind of called him on the carpet for not living according to the word of God. And apparently Peter bears no grudge here, though, against him. For here he commends Paul's writings as confirming the very things that he, Paul, Peter, has been teaching regarding Christ's second coming. In fact, some scholars have tried to narrow it down to what Pauline epistle specifically is, is paralleling Peter's teaching here. He's trying to say, well, what is Peter talking about? He's referring to Paul's writings. Is it a particular book? We don't know uh, what he's referring to. Suffice it to say, at that time that Peter wrote Second Peter, a good number of Paul's epistles were probably circulating throughout the church at that time. We've already known that Paul's words regarding the patience of the Lord in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 and chapter 9 verse 22. We also know that Paul wrote letters to the Galatians, the Ephesians, and the Colossians, which are all in that region of Asia Minor, that Peter is addressing here in his two epistles. And most importantly, Peter says that Paul spoke according to the wisdom given to him. That wisdom was not given by man, but by who? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Paul didn't just make things up as he went along. No, he was guided by the Holy Spirit to say the things that he said. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 through 10. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> this is Paul speaking here to the Corinthians. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. We have not seen nor heard nor even comprehended the glory that awaits us in Christ, that God has prepared for those who love him. Thus, Paul's writings were directly inspired by God, and therefore, as Peter says in verse 16 of our text, they are to be considered a part of sacred scripture. Peter acknowledges that some of Paul's teachings are are kind of difficult uh, for Peter and for others to understand. That doesn't mean they're unbiblical, but that the subject, eschatology in particular, or the study of end times, was challenging, and Paul used words which at first glance are difficult to discern in their meanings. In fact, uh, you might want to see 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, for instance, to read that text and kind of you can see where, unless you're really studying hard, you might just read through that and say, wow, what is he talking about there? As any student of Pauline epistles can testify, he was not a man of few words. And some of his words are weighty, and they take time and prayer to digest. But Peter's point here is not that the theological depth or difficulty of Paul's writings, but that these untaught and unstable people which is probably a reference to these false teachers in chapter 2, twist all scripture, twist all scripture and to suit themselves. The Holy Spirit uh, is both the inspiration for and the interpreter of scripture, and we are to look to him for a clear understanding of any biblical passage that we study. And this is why it's imperative that we not only study the word of God, as we're told in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved, but that we spend much time in prayer asking the Holy Spirit to teach us what he would have us understand from that portion of Scripture as we study. These false teachers think they can use the Scriptures any way they want and get people to follow their false ideas, but instead they bring on themselves their own destruction, Peter's saying. Paul described them quite aptly in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19 as those, quote, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. Moving on here as we come to the close of this chapter, let's look at the last couple of verses in which Peter is exalting us, don't fall, but grow instead. Don't fall, but grow. One final if-then statement he gives us here, and again, I, I challenge you to look for those. Peter's challenging his readers and us to use what we have been taught to grow in grace. Let's read verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away from the error of the wicked, with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Basically, Peter is saying that since he has now forewarned them that these false teachers will come, if they aren't there already, and distort the scriptures to try and lead people away from the truth, they should be on guard. They should be on guard, lest they should be led astray. And we need to be on on guard against false teachers. Excuse me. 
Paul states this point using an example quite clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Turn with me there. This will be our last side reference here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Paul's using this as an example for us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Remind them, he's telling Timothy, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So beware of these who bring these false uh, statements, false prophecies even, and be anchored in the word of God, in the word of truth, and live according to that word of truth. Basically, Peter's saying here that since he has now forewarned them of the false teachers, then they need to be on guard. You need to be prepared. Be careful, beloved, and especially when you hear a false preacher or teacher questioning or throwing doubts, uh, even if he doesn't seem false initially, but if he starts throwing doubts upon clear biblical doctrines, as Brian's been teaching here in the 1689, someone starts questioning or doubting or twisting those doctrines to suit their own purposes, be careful and follow up and search the scriptures for either confirmation or denial of what they've been saying. Might also want to see Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 for some good counsel and advice there. If we pay attention to deceivers, we may soon find ourselves swept away by their lies and falling into the same error and the, and the chastening hand of God, if we're his. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Remember, beloved, Satan himself is transformed into an age of light. And as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and therefore it is not surprising that his ministers pretend to be ministers of righteousness. So don't fall for their lies, but rather repudiate them. That's what Peter's saying here. So rather than falling, Peter's saying, since we have been forewarned by Peter regarding these false teachers, let us instead grow spiritually and press on in our faith. Here in verse 18, we have the fitting ending, I guess you might call it, to Peter's epistles. It's a clarion call. It's a holy exhortation to all believers of all times. We are to grow in grace. Grace itself is a gift from God, isn't it? Griffin Thomas, an English pastor and scholar and writer at the turn of the 20th century, put it this way. Grace surrounds and upholds. Grace is the atmosphere of their life. And as they abide in it, They are to keep on growing. That's literally what it means here in the Greek. They are to not just grow, but to keep on growing in Christ. So in this atmosphere atmosphere of grace, we, the plants of the Lord, are to grow up into the image of our Savior. Like a good preacher, Peter ties to the end of his message, to the beginning of his message. For you might recall, in 2 Peter 1, verse 2, he said, Grace and peace be multiplied you in the knowledge of God, and of Jesus our Lord. So here he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's tying it back to his greeting at the beginning. We are to grow spiritually as God waters and fertilizes us with his grace, 
And if we truly are growing in grace, then it should be natural that we are growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The more we know of him, then the more we should desire to live like him and to imitate his pure and loving and submissive life before the Father. That's what we should be like him in. In the Old Testament, we have a similar exhortation from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3. It says, let us know and let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter in the former rain. There's the picture of us being a plant that is being watered by God's grace. We are to grow up unto him. Peter concludes with the doxology here that clearly identifies Christ as deity, isn't it? To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. He is a God of very God, both now and forever, for all eternity. He is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, and therefore deserves the honor that belongs to God alone. In John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. As we grow in grace and wisdom and knowledge of Him, let us also grow in the praises and honor that we give to his name, who has redeemed us by his blood and made us kings and priests to our God and his Father. I'll close with this. Augustine said, Almighty God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. One day, a day God has appointed, all that are his in Christ will find their true Sabbath rest in him. And we will spend eternity resting in him and glorifying him To him be glory and dominion and praise both now and through all eternity to come. Maranatha, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Let's close in prayer. 